So setting the stage here, many of you know this little background between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans becomes another name for the tribe of Ephraim, which was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel that came out of Egyptian slavery and they went into the promised land and the 12 tribes settled. Ephraim's tribe down through the centuries became the most prosperous of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were in the north and they were the embodiment of Israel in the north. And then there was the Jews or Judah in the south with David and Solomon and Jerusalem with their capital. But this very, very prosperous region in the north didn't like being um, under the authority of the king from a city in the south. Uh, David and Solomon and their successors, etc. And over time, they wanted to keep their wealth and their their taxes and their power, etc. And they began to drift into paganism. In time, they would eventually even ally with the enemies of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Syrians and Hunan from the north, and betray the Jews. And Judah would collapse and fall. They would ally with whoever it was, the Assyrians or Babylonians. All right. So going then forward centuries later, we have the dynamic between the Jews and the Samaritans who are no longer calling themselves the people of the tribe of Ephraim, but this name Samaritan. And the Jews see them as betrayers. They betrayed God and they betrayed the Jews. They betrayed Jews unto their death sort of thing. And so, and the Samaritans are not repentant about that. They seem to hold out as if there's some self-righteousness in that. So we have this dynamic between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jew, Jesus would use the story of the Samaritans too and the, the story of the good Samaritan in another place. But Jesus uses this dynamic of the Samaritans and Jews to draw some real distinctions for the Jewish people because frankly, a traitor is disliked or hated more than a foreign enemy. An enemy within is worse than an enemy without. And that's how the Samaritans are seen. So the Jews and the Samaritans at this point in their history have nothing to do with one another. But Samaria is a region between Jerusalem and Galilee. So when Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee and his disciples, they pass through Samaria on a regular basis. So, we've got that as background. Here's the scene. Jesus, being God, knows that up at this well, this Jacob's well, he's going to find this woman. And the two of them are going to be alone for a moment here because Jesus has sent the apostles off to run some errands. So Jesus comes up to this place. There's the woman that he saw in vision, etc. And he knows her whole story, everything, because he's God. And this is the beginning of this dynamic. And there's a a whole bunch of different things going on here that the Samaritan woman would understand that we don't. Power dynamics and historical understandings and all kinds of different things that would be difficult for us to know unless we've studied that. And I'm going to talk about some of those because it sets her up for a conversion that not only changes her life, but she'll go on to change the lives of other people. So this first one is Jesus, a Jewish man. Remember the distinction between the Jews and the Samaritans. A Jewish man asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. The Samaritan woman asks him why he's asking in the first place. Another way of phrasing it is the Samaritan woman is asking Jesus who he thinks he is. Who do you think you are? 
you're a Jewish man, I'm a Samaritan woman, we're at this well, we're not supposed to be talking to one another. It also gets into this other dynamic that Jewish men didn't speak to single women, like, unless they were family members or known or related. You just didn't walk up to a woman and talk to her. That was strictly forbidden for the Jews to do that. In our day and age, it would be seen as a threatening thing for the woman. Like, is this man, you know, going to assault me? Who is this guy? So when the apostles come back and see that Jesus has been talking to this woman that says they're astounded. This is totally out of the Jewish decorum that a Jewish man would speak to a woman that he doesn't know. But there's a whole bunch of these dynamics going on, things that are not in the norm. The power dynamic of a man and a woman, a Jew and a Samaritan. One asking another to do something for them, which sets up a master-servant dynamic. And then the man speaking with a woman he doesn't know. And then this, we think, well, okay, he's asking her to serve her. But in reality, there's a different dynamic that happens in antiquity. And as we read through the Old Testament in particular, we keep seeing the importance of being hospitable and welcoming the stranger. In this dynamic, for somebody to ask another for a cup of water, then the one offering the water is the one who held the power. So it's one thing for this woman with the water bucket to go fetch water for her family. It's another for somebody wandering in the wilderness to ask for a cup of water and to give them to her. It's akin to this. Giving a drink of water to another is a position of power for the host, the one giving the water. They have the thing that the seeker is seeking. Another way of understanding it is after Mass at coffee hour, a child would go over there to receive a donut from an adult who gives them the donut. The adult is the one with the thing they want and the one in that position of power. And so this inverts the relationship between all of these dynamics that are going on and it really stirs the sediment within the woman what is going on here who is this guy alright next thing is this Jesus will ask her or will say to her something about the husband only to set this up that Jesus knows that she's been married five times and that the man that she's with right now is not her husband, which she confesses to Jesus. I've been married five times, the man I'm not with now, the man I'm with now is not my husband, meaning I've been with six men. And Jesus will be the seventh, which is for God the perfect number. And he will be the one who will turn her life around. In antiquity, especially in Hebrew writings, there's all this dynamic about, we see this over and over again, to Tobit and his wife, and and Moses and his wife, and uh, Jacob and his wife, and this whole dynamic of boy meets girl kind of thing. And then they end up with a bride-bridegroom kind of a dynamic. But in this, she's already been married so many times, etc., And it's not this bride-bridegroom kind of dynamic, but something's going on here between the two in which something powerful is happening. And the power is that she'll realize that he's the anointed one. And she'll say that we're waiting for the anointed one, which is actually really important for our ears. Because the Jews speaking Hebrew would use the word Messiah, meaning Savior. 
The Greeks are the ones who use the word anointed, meaning Christ. She says, we know that the anointed one is coming. She's literally speaking in Hebrew, and then she'll flip into Greek and use the word Christ. Christ is coming. And he says, I am. And when he says, I am, it harkens back to Moses in the wilderness when Moses asked God, who are you? And God says, I am who am. The Samaritans had rejected all the other readings of the, of the Old Testament, except for the first five. They're fully aware of the encounter of Moses in the wilderness in Genesis, the I am who am. Jesus will also say, I am at another place, in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman guards come to arrest him. In John's Gospel, when they say, are you Jesus the Nazarene? He says, I am. And the guards all fall to the ground. I find it peculiar that that's never in any of those movies about Jesus, the guards falling to the ground. And yet it's right there in John's Gospel. I am. And they all fall back onto the ground. The words of God have literally knocked them off their feet. And then they get up and they're a little more circumspect about who they're dealing with here. They're more like, "Uh, will you please come with us? We've got some business with you, kind of thing. And they tie him up and lead him away. But when he says, I am to the woman, there's a great power that's being infused here. And he speaks about this water. And this water, this water is life-giving grace. It's the grace coming from God. And it's all kinds of different things that are associated with it. We associate it with not only the necessity of water for life, but the necessity of water for baptism and new life in God and the grace that comes from it. From the well of water or water comes grace and love, which will lead to life and truth. And she's discovering this in the here and now. The woman will then run back into the village and share with the villagers what it is that she's found at Jacob's well, and some of them will come out to meet who this guy is, much like the little boy who cried wolf, and the villagers come out of the village to go find the wolf. In this case, they find Jesus. And then they invite him back into town, and it says he stayed with them for two days. So he goes back in the town, and more came to believe. But it doesn't say the whole town came to believe, and it's really important for us to remember that. If Jesus couldn't convert everyone, let's not think that we can We have family members that we can't seem to convert. They seem to reject Jesus and stay away from him. We can only do the best that we can do. And by the grace of God, leave the rest to God and to them. But many come to believe because of this woman, because of this man's thirst. Now what Jesus is really thirsting for at the well, and this is a dialogue that he has with his apostles, is I thirst for souls. And I thirst not for my flesh here, but for eternal life. Jesus will use the words, I thirst on the cross. As he's dying on the cross. And he hasn't had it, probably hasn't had a drink of water since the Last Supper the night before. Remember, they finished the Last Supper. He goes in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And that's where he's arrested. And he doesn't die until... Three o'clock in the afternoon. He's probably had no water that whole time. 
In addition, Jesus loses a ton of blood from the scourging and the, the crown of thorns, etc. He's very dehydrated. And it's one of the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. I thirst. But Jesus is on that cross and he says, I thirst. In that context, what he means is, I thirst and now I will quench the thirst by succeeding in my mission. I will have vanquished Satan, sin and death. And I will redeem the human race. That's how my thirst will be satiated. Jesus thirsts for this woman's soul. He thirsts for the soul of everyone in that village. He's thirst for you and me and for our souls. And he will continue to thirst for us until we are safely home into the beatific vision of heaven. In the meantime, he wants us to be like this woman and to be converted, which another way of looking at that is to be in communion with him. And then being in communion with him, not to be satisfied with that, but then go share that communion with other people. And to the end of our life, do as much as we can to bring as many people to the everlasting water and life of Jesus Christ, who has life waiting in abundance in this life and in the kingdom to come.